Hello friends, this is John Ferguson, pastor of Mercy Hill Church in Bryan College Station. I want to take just a moment and thank you for joining us as you listen to this study. Uh, just a couple items to note. First of all, we are not gathered together in a live setting. Uh, our hospitalizations due to COVID in our area were over 130% in the ICU. So as a church, we decided to go back online to help flatten the curve in our area. So there's a different dynamic than what you might normally hear in this recording. Secondly, this is a recording. We were meeting over Zoom, and so there were some recording issues. I'm not sure why. Perhaps it was a weakness of the Wi-Fi or something. But occasionally in this message, you'll hear uh, some puttering, some static, and we try to minimize that the best we could as we cleaned up and edited this uh, a little bit for um, publication. And so I trust, nevertheless, that you'll still be able to uh, hear what's going on, what's being said. And thank you for considering and weighing uh, this study as you think about what it might mean to follow Jesus in this cultural, spiritual moment that we find ourselves in. Thank you, and God bless. One of the most beautiful, brilliant, and breathtaking films I've seen in my life is a film called A Hidden Life. And I watched this with my family, I think it was the day after Christmas this past year. It tells the story of Franz and Fanny, two peasant farmers living in Austria during the rise of the Third Reich. And Franz and Fanny, they, they love their country. And he gets conscripted into military service and he, he's willing to defend his country, but he grows uneasy with what the Fuhrer, the Hitler, is asking of him. And he cannot serve in that capacity anymore. Events are, are set in motion when some people give a Heil Hitler and he refuses to return the greeting. And so he finds himself in jail. And it's interesting, the story is based on a series of letters. Uh, true, this is a true story. Letters that he and his wife sent back and forth. And in one of the earlier letters, he said to his, to his bride, Oh my wife, what's happened to our country? To the land we love. Friends, that question popped into my mind as we watched the events unfold in our nation's capital some 10 days ago on a very cold and overcast and ominous day. I saw things that I wish that I had not seen. I saw things I thought I would never see. There were pictures that disturbed me. I saw makeshift gallows constructed with a noose hanging from them with Joe Biden's name written on it. I saw video of people trying to break into the Capitol who were shouting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. I thought about playing the audio on this. My wife cautioned me against that, reminding me that we have young people listening that fi might find that disturbing. And it is disturbing. I was disturbed by it. I was disturbed to see pictures of police officers being dragged out into the crowd. I saw video, again, I decided not to show it, but I just want to circle it, of a police officer who was dragged out. And this person in the circle um, is bludgeoning this police officer with a hockey stick. Another man, when this officer was down on the ground, took the pole to which he had attached an American flag and relentlessly beat the officer. 30 minutes later, this man, Peter Francis Fager, was seen on video saying, death is the only remedy for what's in that building. Another police officer by the name of Michael Fanon was dragged into the crowd. He had his 
His, his shield ripped from him. People were going for his ammunition. He was being tased. And people in the crowd, he said, were shouting, kill him with his own gun. If you're able to see this picture of him, you can see the look of terror on his face as he screams out, I have children. And as I watch these events unfold, I ask myself the question, what's happened to our country, to the land that we love? Well, at least one answer that is being put forth is that Christians happened to this nation. There's an article in the New York Times that said not only Christians, but evangelical Christians, and not only evangelical Christians, but white evangelical Christians fused Trump extremism and took a mix of grievance and religious fervor, and according to their own testimony, saw themselves as participating in a kind of holy war. The respected journal, The Atlantic, had an article by Emma Green entitled, A Christian Insurrection. And the subtitle on this article was, Many of those who robbed, uh, mobbed the Capitol on Wednesday claimed to be enacting God's will. And my friends, I wonder how this sets with you as you see these headlines. There's all kinds of things that, that well up in me, within me, and I have to admit, I don't like what is being said. But this is part of the conversation that's going on in our nation at this moment. Emma Green in this article said, The name of God was everywhere during Wednesday's insurrection against the American government. The mob carried signs and flags declaring, Jesus saves, and God, guns, and guts made America. Let's keep all three. Is she exaggerating? Is she being unfair? I wonder, as, as people saw images of what was going on, and saw signs of Jesus prominently displayed, and they saw crosses erected, when they saw people holding signs that says, God wins, or even Jesus saves, what did they think? In this picture, I hope this man was preaching the true gospel of Jesus, but I have to ask myself, with people who, who thought they were taking back the government, when they saw the sign, Jesus saves, did that, in their mind, get translated into, Jesus is saving our government? This, this, is, this is a question that we need to ask. There are other signs like this one. This man appears to be holding two flags. On the one hand, he's holding a flag that says, Make America Godly Again. And on the other flag is a picture of the president's face imposed on the body of Rambo, carrying a military-grade assault weapon. Let me just say, he may not be holding both of these flags, someone else may be holding one of them, but they're side by side. And what message is being communicated to our nation? What has happened to our country, to the land that we love? My friends, today I want us to ask a question, and that is the question, how do we live as people of truth in an age of lies and deception? That is, how, how do we, as people who follow Jesus, who want to follow Jesus, who believe Jesus is good for this world, how do we live as people of truth in an age of lies and deception? 
how do we live and comport ourselves when conspiracy theories and fake news and disinformation and propaganda and alternative facts are everywhere? That's the question I want us to ask. And so I'm going to call our study today, Truth, Lies, and This Cultural Moment. Or maybe I should say more accurately, This Spiritual Moment. We're going to draw on some wisdom from Jesus from the Gospel of John. And as we get ready to look at this, let me just make a couple of preliminary points. Actually, just four, if I could do so. Number one is this. Truth is sometimes, oftentimes maybe, offensive. It can make us uncomfortable. I know that I am uncomfortable with some of the things I have to say today. But the question is not, are we uncomfortable or are we offended? But the question is, what is truth? Secondly, we are always called to speak the truth in love. Those of us who, who name the name of Jesus are always called to speak the truth in love. I'm seeking to do that this day. And communication is always a difficult thing. There's what I intend to communicate. There's what I actually communicate. And on your end, there's what you hear me communicating. And there's grids and filters. And so let's give one another as much grace and seek to, to hear um, this conversation in the best possible light. A third preliminary. I am not a Democrat. And I am not a Republican. I am a Christian. That is my deepest identity. And I proclaim a message that Jesus is Lord of all. I've taken vows in my ordination to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And I speak today as one who is very consciously aware that I will have to give an account for every word that I speak today. And the fourth preliminary point is, as your pastor, I am working for your joy in Christ and for the cause of Christ. I am deeply concerned with what's going on in our nation, but I am even more deeply concerned with what's going on in the church of Jesus this day. I worry that perhaps we are making it more difficult for ourselves to follow Jesus. I, I worry that the faith that we try to pass on to the next generation is, is a faith that is in a context where it's much more difficult to follow Jesus. And I wonder how much we've contributed to that. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John today, John chapter 8. And so I'm cashing in my chips with you, my friends. Whatever chips I have as your pastor, I'm cashing them in today. And let me just say as well, so you'll know, this is going to be the most um, extensive, or put it another way, the longest message I've given. And so um, I'm cashing my chips. I'm, I'm asking for your grace and patience and, and if you need to get up and refill your coffee, please go ahead and do so. Uh, but continue to listen. And, and I beg of you, please listen to the end. This is a, a time of testing for us as a church, for me as your pastor, for those of us who want to follow Jesus, as it is a time of testing in our culture as well. And the stakes could not be higher. So let's take a moment and pray as we get ready to jump into the scriptures. Father, we are living in uh, a moment in which we feel the gravity of what's going on. We feel the suspicion that everyone feels against their fellow American. We feel anguished at what we see, and even perhaps what we see as being passed off in Jesus' name. Give us courage to be people of the truth, to face the truth, to ask hard questions of ourselves, 
as we seek to understand what it means for us to live as people of truth in an age of lies and deception. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 8 falls in a context where people are divided over who Jesus is. As he tells us, as John tells us in chapter 7, there was a division over Jesus, and some of the people there wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. There's growing conflict between the authorities and the religious authorities on the one hand and Jesus on the other. In fact, a few chapters from where we are today, we're going to be told by the Apostle John that the religious leaders from that day in particular put in plan or put in motion plans to put Jesus to death. And so in chapter 8, we hear these words of Jesus. In chapter, in chapter 8, verse 14, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These are amazing words of Jesus. He claims to be the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And John in this gospel has already introduced to us Jesus, calling him the true light, which enlightens everyone. John is making his case that if we understand who Jesus is and we embrace him, we become enlightened. But someone says, and why is it the Christians I know are anything but enlightened? Someone says, the Christians I know are the ones who are sharing the conspiracy theories on Facebook. The Christians are the ones I know who, whenever you present to them truth or a news article or scientific study, dismiss it as fake news. My friends, many people see Christians as peddlers in anything but the truth. And so how is it that Jesus, who is the light of the world, has followers who put off anything but being enlightened? My friends, if, if you struggle with this, if you know how this objection hits home, then let me just say, I, I hear your pain. I feel it. Let me confess to you something. On Friday, two days after this event in the Capitol happened, a woman asked me, so what is it that you do for a living? And for the first time, my friends, I was embarrassed to say that I am a pastor of a Christian church. I'm not embarrassed of Jesus, and I'm certainly not embarrassed of you, my people in this flock. But I knew in saying that I'm a pastor of a Christian church, that person may be viewing me in any number of lights. And, and so when someone raises this objection, why is it the Christians I know are anything but enlightened? I feel that. Because I wonder that same thing on myself. And so if you wonder about that, you want to hear what Jesus says. In verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and before we see what he says, notice what John is saying. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who had believed in him. Jesus himself was a Jew, and he's speaking to people who, who in some sense believed in Jesus. In some sense, they would have said that we are followers of Jesus. We believe in you. We want to, we want to see what you're going to do. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in them, and what he's going to say, he's playing for keeps. Because Jesus understands that something sinister, 
something dark, something has changed in these people who said they had believed in him. So in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If we geek out on this Greek for a minute, that word abide simply means to remain or to stay, to live, dwell, to endure or continue. So Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, that is, if you remain in my word, if you dwell in my word, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And this is an odd way for them to respond to Jesus. Uh, The nation of Israel right now is subject to the Roman Empire. They are not a free nation. And and so they say to Jesus, how can you say we will be free? They're not seeing reality correctly, not only the lay of the land politically, but something much more deeply that Jesus is going to go after. They are spiritually blind. Jesus says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying your, your deep, deep problem is not political but rather spiritual. If you practice sin, you are a slave to sin. But Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is claiming to speak words of truth, and his words of truth liberate people, and they will know the truth, and they will be free. He continues and says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Interesting. Here are these people descended from Abraham who now are seeking to put Jesus to death. And Jesus wants to have a conversation about who their father is. Verse 39, they answer him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing your works, I'm sorry, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. My friends, notice what they're saying here. They bring Jesus' mother, Mary, into the conversation and hinting at the fact in their eyes that she had engaged in sexual immorality, basically calling Jesus a bastard, and that Jesus' father is not the God of heaven. And they claim that for themselves. In verse 22, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then he says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. To these people who claimed to be the children of Abraham, inheritors of the blessing and promise God spoke to Abraham, to the ones who claimed that God in heaven was their father. Jesus said to them, your father 
is the devil and you desire to do your father's desire. Remember, these are people who at one time in some sense believed in Jesus. And he goes on and says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. There's some heavy conversation here, my friends. Let's make some, some key points that we need to observe from this. The first one is this. According to Jesus, there is a kingdom of light that traffics in the truth, and there is a kingdom of darkness that traffics in lies and does not stand in the truth. And both of these kingdoms, spiritual nature, Jesus tells us, invite our allegiance. Here's another key point. According to Jesus, there is a dark and powerful and personal entity at work inspiring blindness to reality and hatred and murder in people's hearts. This entity works primarily primarily through lies and deception. Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. <clears throat> Here's a third key point. People who had believed in Jesus can fall prey to the power of lies. Even satanically inspired lies about Jesus. And a fourth and final point. If you traffic in lies, you're mimicking the character of the evil one, no matter what you say you believe. In other words, if you lie, you're carrying out the desires of the evil one in whom there is no truth. My friends, these four key points need to guide our conversation as we ask the question, how do we live as people of truth in an age of lies and deception? So I've got two key points of application. The first one for us, we ought to embrace Jesus as the light of the world. He claims to be the light of the world. He claims that those who follow him will not walk in darkness. We will not live in darkness. We will not traffic in darkness. But we will have the light of life. And so this conflict is really a conflict about who Jesus is. Jesus himself claimed to be the way. He claimed to be the truth. And he claimed to be the life, eternal life. And he tells us, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so the gospel comes to everyone who hears it with this claim of Jesus to be the light of the world, to be the truth. And so the question we have to ask, is Jesus lying or is he telling the truth? Is Jesus a lunatic or something worse? Or is he telling the truth? As the Gospels tell us the story about Jesus, we're told that Jesus stood before Pilate after he had been betrayed and arrested. And he said to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate is there looking at Jesus in the face as he said these words. And this is how Pilate responded. What is truth? Jesus, the truth, is standing in front of him. And Pilate is blind to the truth. He wants to be rid of Jesus, and so he takes Jesus before the crowds. And we're told in the Gospel of John, from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Here, these, these crowds are saying, look, Jesus is claiming to be a king. And if you don't do something about it, you are on his side. You are not Caesar's friend. You join him in opposing Caesar. And he, that is Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Here, the chief priests, the religious leaders of the people of Israel, didn't respond by saying, We have no king but God. But they proclaimed their ultimate allegiance to the Roman Empire and said, We have no king but Caesar. They cried out all the more, we're told in the Gospel of Luke. They cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. And here Pilate admits that he, he knows the truth, that Jesus is not guilty of anything deserving death. And he thinks he can satisfy their bloodlust by trampling justice, punishing an evil man, and releasing him. But... They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Make no mistake, my friends. The truth was staring Pilate in the face. And he literally said, to hell with the truth. And he handed Jesus over, this one who is the light of the world, to die a slow and agonizing, excruciating death on a cross. This one who is the Lord of life, had his life seeping from him. The one who is the light of the world, was ensconced in darkness. The Gospel writers tell us that when Jesus died, there was darkness over the whole land. I wonder if at that moment, the disciples of Jesus were asking, what has happened to our country, to the land we love? My friends, what I want us to see in this moment is that when lives flourish, the kingdom of darkness reigns over the land and in the hearts of people. The good news is that's not the end of the story. Jesus, three days later, was resurrected from the dead. He was crowned with glory and honor, declared by God to be the resurrected Son of God in power. And Jesus himself said to his disciples when he came before them and gave them their marching orders, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make the disciples of all nations. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but it is for this world. 
And the gospel is, and has been, and forever will be. Jesus is the true Lord and Savior of the world. And so he commissioned his disciples to go out with that message. And it was in the environment of the Roman Empire that believed the emperors were the sons of God, who gave them descriptions like King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and the Savior of the whole world. It was into this kind of environment that the early disciples of Jesus, who saw the resurrected Jesus, went and said, Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Which meant that the Caesar, the empire, the Roman emperor, were parodies in their claim. And what's interesting, what got the Christians in trouble, is on one level, Rome didn't care who you worshipped. Of course, they wanted you to, to, to give allegiance to the Roman deities, but what they really wanted was for you to give your ultimate allegiance to the leader of the empire. And what I find today at work, especially in the church, is a spirit that says, I really don't care what you say about Jesus. What I really care about is what you say about politics. I want to know, are you pro-Trump? Are you against Trump? I want to know if you're pro-Biden, if you're anti-Biden. Where do you stand politically? That seems to be what's being asked first and foremost these days. J.T. English, a pastor in Colorado, said this just the other day. I sense that many people are more concerned about where their church stands politically than where they are with where their church stands theologically. This is in itself an indication of what we worship. My friends, we are called to be people of the truth, to embrace Jesus as the light of the world, and to walk in his light. And so that brings us to the second point of application. My friends, we are called to live as children of the light. We who embrace the light of the world are meant to have that life reflect, that light rather, reflect off of us and into this world. It's amazing. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, who is the light of the world, said this to his disciples. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul, who at one point was enslaved to darkness. He was killing Christians. He thought he was doing God's work, but encountered Jesus and was radically transformed. And Jesus even commissioned him to preach his gospel. And he said this, Paul the Apostle said this to Christians living in the ancient city of Ephesus. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Here the Apostle Paul calls those who follow Jesus the light of the world. And he calls them to walk, that is to live as light and to have no part in the fruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So we could put it like this. Christians of all people should be committed to the truth no matter what. We should be committed to the truth no matter if it makes our side look bad. 
We should be committed to the truth, no matter if it makes the people that we vote for look bad. We don't cover up. Rather, we bring things to the light. And so, my friends, with that in mind, in light of the fact that Christians are called to be truth seekers and truth tellers, to be lovers of the truth, I feel compelled to address some of the issues that I see entangling people, and even some Christians in this cultural, or maybe I should say in this spiritual moment we find ourselves in. My friends, I promise you that some of you are going to think that what I'm doing next is being partisan, and I am not being partisan. But I am going to call out some folks that I think are being partisan and are not dealing with the truth. So my friends, listen to what I say, weigh what I'm saying, and, and let's, let's love the truth no matter where it lands. First of all, <clears throat> on the evening the Capitol was attacked, when Capitol Police were able to re-secure the building, set the perimeter, and the representatives were able to come together again, Representative Mark Getz of Florida stood on the floor and said this, I don't know if the reports are true, but the Washington Times has just reported that some, I'm sorry, just reported some pretty compelling evidence from a facial recognition company showing that some of the people who breached the Capitol today were masquerading as Trump supporters and were in fact members of the violent terrorist group Antifa. Now, I, I want to say to Representative Getz here, if you have to preface your comments with saying, I don't know if the reports are true, then maybe you shouldn't tell what those reports are saying until you've confirmed that truth. But he said, nevertheless, there's been evidence to suggest that some of the people were masquerading as Trump supporters and were, in fact, members of the violent terrorist group Antifa. The next morning, our own Texas Attorney General tweeted, those who stormed the Capitol yesterday were not Trump supporters. They have been confirmed to be Antifa. Now, both of these men, I think, were referencing the Washington Times uh, report that said on January 6th, right before the representatives went back into session, facial recognition firm claims Antifa infiltrated Trump protesters who stormed the Capitol. Rowan Scarborough, who wrote this article, said a retired military officer told the Washington Times that the firm XR Vision used its software to do facial recognition of protesters and matched two Philadelphia Antifa members to men inside the Senate. Now this report that was taken and presented to the House of Representatives, this news item that our own Texas Attorney General based some of his claims upon was in fact wrong. The next day, the Washington Times issued a correction and said the Washington Times erroneously reported uh, that late Wednesday that facial recognition technology backed up that speculation and identified two Antifa members. In fact, XR Vision has not identified any members of that far-left movement as being a part of the attack. The Washington Times reported that the FBI says there is no evidence Antifa participated in storming the Capitol. U.S. Attorney, Assistant Attorney, uh, for the District of Columbia said, we know we have no indication of that at this time. This is on uh, February, I'm sorry, January 8th. My friends, my point is not to make the case that there were no Antifa members there. 
there may have been some, but the lie that there were no Trump supporters there, that the people who stormed the Capitol were Antifa members, we know is not true. We know because the FBI right now currently is going through 140,000 images and videotapes of people themselves, Trump supporters themselves, who were storming the, cap uh, the Capitol, who told us they were going to do that, who were a part of this. Some of them were Christians. And so, my friends, I, I share this because I feel like this is one of the lies that is being spread right now, and I've seen Christians propagate this lie. And let's just serve as a warning to us. This quote has been attributed to Mark Twain. We don't know that he really said it, but a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth puts on its shoes. And for those of us who are called to witness to the truth, both to the truth of who Jesus is and, and truth of what's going on in our culture, we must be careful to share information that we don't know is true. And someone is saying this right now, man, I can't believe anything I read about these days, can I? And the cynical part of me wants to say, I don't think we can. But I want to counter the cynical part of me with a bit more realistic perspective. Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician, said this in the 1600s. It seems like it was written today. But he said, truth is so obscured nowadays and lies so well established that unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. Unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. My friends, Christians are called to be wise and discerning. We should check our sources and double check and triple check to make sure that what we are speaking is the truth. Just as a little aside, may I recommend for those of you who are politically inclined to check out the website allsides.com. This is an aggregate news site that pulls articles written from all different perspectives and presents it to you. And they have even a chart that helps you to see if news has been rated as center, center left, center right, or far left or far right. And so my friends, it, it, we owe it to ourselves and to those people that we share news with, to know where news sources themselves come from. And I'm not even saying don't read stuff from the far left or from the far right, but don't let that be your silo. Don't let that be your echo chamber. Rather, gather news and hear what people from all sides are saying, and do your best to try to discern what is the truth. And so having said that, my friends, let's be aware of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs and values. People tend to unconsciously select information that supports their views, but ignore non-supportive or contradictory information. My friends, we can all easily fall prey to confirmation bias, to hear what we want to hear. But let's be lovers of the truth, seekers of the truth. So that brings me to the second issue I want to address. In our nation right now, we have voices saying the election was stolen. And we have people who are saying, no, it wasn't. And I'm not going to try to settle that argument today. I simply want to bring it before us. The day that the Capitol was stormed, President Trump 
appeared on videotape to the nation with these words. I know your pain. I know your hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election. And everyone knows it. I'm sure, my friends, that, that many of you have different thoughts about what he said in this moment. The question I want to ask is, how do we know the election was stolen? Let me ask this question. Do you want to know and to believe the truth? There's a danger for each and every one of us, myself included, to believe what we want to believe. But my friends, we should, we should want to know and to believe the truth. Even at the center of Christianity, the most mind-blowing claim that Jesus came back from the dead is based on evidence. Scholars across the board, both believing scholars and unbelieving scholars, tell us that historically there was an execution. There was an empty tomb. There were eyewitnesses who believed they saw Jesus come back from the dead. And there was the explosive growth of the church based on the message that we have seen Jesus crucified and alive again. And so we're called not to believe what we want to believe, but to weigh the evidence and to believe the truth. And so when we think about this issue of whether the election was stolen or not stolen, do we want to know the truth? Do we want to believe the truth? Or do we want to believe what we want to believe? I think that's a fair question for us to entertain. The Apostle Paul, writing to his young protege in the, in the ministry, Timothy, said this. He said, The time will come when people will not put up with sound teaching, instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. Now in context, Paul is talking about teachers who are speaking about spiritual issues. And if people want to gather around them teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, How much more is that the case that even today that's true? How many of us gather around us teachers, speakers, pundits, news commentators who tell us what we want to hear? Are we hearing the truth or are we turning away to myths? One final issue I want to bring up is this. I'm going to ask it in the, term of, in, in the form of a question. True or false? Is it okay to demonize, slander, and impugn the motives of my political opponents? I hope, my friends, that each and every one of us would say no. Let me put it one, one other way. Is it okay for Christians, people who follow Jesus, the light of the world and the truth, is it okay for Christians to demonize, slander, and impugn the motives of our political opponents, whoever they may be. I ask that question because I'm going to, to give an illustration of a, of a person who is probably the most well-known evangelical Christian in our nation. P. 
people who look to them, people who look to him to guide them in, in truth, to be a voice of reason. And many people love him, if for no other reason they love his father. And I'm, of course, speaking of Franklin Graham. On January 2nd, I'm sorry, 7th, the day after the invasion, he said this, Pray that everyone will stop the finger-pointing and realize that both parties bear responsibility for the problems we face today. Pray that we will come together and work together for the good of all the American people. Now, I think Franklin Graham is, is striking probably the right tone here. We need to stop the finger-pointing. We need to realize both parties and, and all of us have played a part in where we find ourselves today. And we need to pray that we will come together and that we will work together for the good of all people in America. But the same Franklin Graham who said that on January 7th, one week later, would post this to his Facebook page. And I'm bringing up the issue of the impeachment, and I'm not trying to be divisive on this. I know people have different thoughts about it, but I'm simply using this as an illustration. Franklin Graham said on Facebook on Thursday, shame Shame on the 10 Republicans who joined with Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in impeaching President Trump yesterday. After all he has done for our country, you would turn your back and betray him so quickly? It makes you wonder what the 30 pieces of silver were that Speaker Pelosi promised for this betrayal. My friends, I hope that your heart sinks to hear the face of evangelical Christianity accuse, slander, and impugn people that he views as his political opponents. Now, I'm not accusing Franklin Graham of having an opinion that perhaps maybe these 10 Republicans should have voted differently. But what I am trying to point out and it blows my mind that acting and speaking now as a partisan, he would compare what these Republicans did to the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. I told myself this morning that if this was taken down from his Facebook, that I would not bring it up today. But he still has it posted for the world to see. It is not a right, my friends for us to impugn the motives of our political opponents. It is not okay for us to take people that we disagree with and call them betrayers on the level of Jesus being betrayed, um, betrayed by Judas. This is simply unacceptable. Has Billy Graham, I'm sorry, has Franklin Graham rather, forgotten what the Apostle Paul said? We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells us that behind this cultural moment is a spiritual moment that we find ourselves in. Our enemies are not our fellow Americans. Our enemies are the kingdom of darkness. Jesus described Satan as the father of lies. And he says it's, it's against him that we must do spiritual battle. And so my friends, I want to ask this question again. What has happened to our country, to the land we love? I fear part of what has happened is we no longer care about the truth. I fear that what has happened is we believe what we want to believe. 
And that's where we find ourselves today. Instead of pointing fingers at our political opponents, I wonder if, my friends, if we could take this moment, this cultural, spiritual moment we find ourselves in, and point the finger at ourselves. The prophet Isaiah, in encountering God, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. As he saw himself for the first time, perhaps, in light of who God is, he realized that his lips were unclean. He's, he's not speaking of having food on his mouth. He's speaking of what comes out of his mouth. That he has been a part of people who carried on lies and deception. And he says, I've been a part of that. And he cries out, woe is me. My friends, what kind of me is God calling me to be in this cultural, spiritual moment? Make no mistake about it. He is calling us to be people of truth and people of love. We, especially who claim to follow Jesus, who claim to follow the one who is the light of the world in whom there is no darkness, the people who claim to follow Jesus, who tells us to love, even our enemies. We are called to be people of truth and love. So my friends, as I bring this to, to a close, I want to just bring you two more quotes. One is from Russell Moore. He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he said yesterday, speaking of the riots that happened on January 6th, I saw the images of Jesus saved signs next to gallows being constructed to hang the Vice President of the United States and other officials. I'm sorry, when I saw that, he said, my response to that was one of rage, just internal rage. Because I love my country. I love the United States of America. I love Jesus more. The sight of Jesus saves and God bless America signs by those violently storming the Capitol, he said, presented to the world a picture of Jesus Christ and of his gospel that is satanic. And so the last word goes to my friend David Casting. Let's make Christianity Christian again. Let's make Christianity Christian again. Let's unwrap Christianity from our politics and from the American flag. Let's lean into the gospel Jesus gave us and seek to live as Christians in this land, in this country that we love.